Good morning, church. Christ has risen. Amen. You know, Seb spoke about where we were last year, and uh, you would have seen maybe this much of me behind the camera. You wouldn't have seen the shorts and the, the bare feet. It's much better wearing pants and being among you, I promise. We're going to read John chapter 19 from verse 38 to chapter 20 verse 10 together. John 19, 38 to 20 verse 10. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come by Jesus, to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out. Uh, sorry, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's open in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, and with joy we come together on this Easter Sunday, and we come to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, that he conquered the grave, that he rose again, and that we have life in him. And we just pray this morning, Father, that, that anything that would distract us this morning, that you would help us to put that aside and come to this text and rejoice together as your church. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. One of the stories in the Bible that has taken on a whole lot of new meaning for me since having children is the story in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is commanded by God to take his son Isaac up the mountainside and to sacrifice him there on the mountain. Now, that story has always been dramatic to me, 
But with the thought of my, my love for my own children, it's actually in recent years caused some real wrestling in my heart. How? How could God ask that of Abraham? Even knowing that he was going to make provision. These are some of the thoughts that I've had in my, in my heart. How could Abraham agree to it? Even going right up to the point of having the knife raised, poised, ready to slay his own son. I've wondered before what emotions Abraham must have had as he climbed the mountain. His precious son with him carrying the wood on his shoulders that he would soon be come the sacrifice upon. Father, Isaac had said, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? God himself will provide, said Abraham. But what was he thinking as he climbed the mountain? Well, the author of Hebrews actually gives us an answer. He says that Abraham had faith, and he says in that he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Such was the faith that Abraham had in the promise of God, a promise that he had made through Isaac. And for Abraham, says the author of Hebrews, he did in a way, he did receive his son back from the dead. Figuratively speaking, he never had to go through with that act. Right at the last moment with the knife hanging in the air, God steps in and says, stop. And Abraham turns his head and there caught in a thicket was a ram. God had provided the sacrifice and Isaac was removed from the place of offering and the lamb was killed in his place. And God's purpose is, is seen right here in the first book of the Bible. We are told he has a plan. Isaac doesn't have to die and you and I don't have to die either. The Lord will provide a sacrifice for sin. A sinless Savior will die. Like Isaac, the Son of God carried wood upon his shoulders, the very wood that he would be crucified to. But unlike Abraham, God the Father would go through with that sacrifice. The knife would be plunged into the beloved Son's heart. And unlike Isaac, who was raised from the dead only figuratively, Jesus was dead, he was buried, and he was literally raised on the third day. Death that held us captive was unable to keep him bound. And he broke the chains of death. And he rose in victory over sin. And we are gathered today as the church to rejoice in the truth of it. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah, we sing. And the love of a father for unworthy children displayed in the death of a beloved son is a love that culminates in resurrection, in life, in joy and peace for us, in redemption. We celebrate that today. He is risen and today, as we study John's account of the resurrection, we will see from his perspective what Easter ought to mean for us as a response to the love of God 
We learn from the disciples today, from Joseph and Nicodemus, that Easter is a source of courage. And from Mary Magdalene, we learn that Easter is a source of hope. And from Peter and John, we will finally learn that Easter ought to be a source of faith. So number one, courage. We don't often think of the burial of Jesus Christ so much as a a part of the gospel. But it is, isn't it? It has a, a prominent place in the writings of the Gospels. It's part of the Apostles' Creed, crucified, died, and was buried. It's part of the creed that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. The burial was important. It was proof of Christ's death and a prelude to the resurrection. Sam Storm said, Without the reality of the burial, both the death of Jesus as the final payment for human sin and the bodily resurrection of Jesus as the defeat of Satan and the consummation of God's saving work would be in question. And like in His death and in His resurrection, even in His burial, we see in the details The details reveal that God is in control of it all. In Isaiah 53, we have that great prophecy of the intimate details of the suffering of the Messiah. And yet in verse 9 there, there's a detail about the burial that's so specific, it's almost jarring if you read it without any New Testament context. It says, Though assigned a grave with the wicked, he was buried with a rich man, in his death. Now usually one who is crucified for sedition in this way, would, they would not be allowed a decent burial. In fact, the Romans liked to leave them uh, to the vultures and the carrion. The Jews would allow for burial, but it certainly wouldn't have been in a, a family tomb like this. It would have been in a, a common grave for criminals outside the city. They wouldn't have desecrated a tomb in this way. But in his burial, we see God at work in the hearts of two disciples. Two disciples who come out of hiding in order to fulfill Scripture. Verse 38 of chapter 19, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. We know from the Synoptic Gospels that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was a a rich man, and Luke says he was a, a good man who hadn't consented to the action of condemning Christ, the action of the Sanhedrin. And Mark tells us that he actually took courage when he approached Pilate for this request. He took courage. This probably would have cost him. It would have been seen as an act of betrayal by some in the Sanhedrin. But finally for Joseph, we see that the death of Christ has spurred him on. This once faint-hearted follower of Christ will finally take action and his allegiance will be seen by all. In his own family tomb, he will lay the Lord. And he doesn't act alone. Nicodemus also in verse 39, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but he comes secretly by cover of darkness. Well, now this disciple is stepping out of the darkness and his allegiance is seen. He, he provides the spices for the burial and a quantity we know which would be equivalent to that of a, a king's burial. These wealthy men will use their means in service for their Lord as the love of Christ, the love for Christ, overcomes their secrecy. Finally, they decide, you know what, we actually don't care who knows. We're going to do this because we love him. And so while many who had openly followed Jesus at this point are in hiding, these men who had been in hiding come forward and their allegiance is seen. And someone has pointed out how difficult that moment actually must have been. Imagine how difficult it would have been for these disciples to take Jesus off the cross. The hands that had, had touched and had healed now torn and, and twisted by nails. Eyes that had wept in compassion that had sparked with joy and searched and known the hearts of men now shut in death. The lips that had spoken only the truth of God now parched and broken. His side, at which so many had walked and been embraced and comforted, now pierced and marred. His back that carried the burdens of the weary now torn and lacerated to shreds. His feet that had brought the very presence of God, the presence of hope and salvation, torn and twisted. All of it given, all of himself given for a sin-filled world. And before there's any understanding in Joseph and in Nicodemus of the resurrection, which is only a couple days away, before any understanding of this, they are moved finally with a broken-hearted, but still with a courageous love. And so we, we must ask how much more we, this side of the resurrection, be controlled not by fear, but by courageous love. Paul speaks of this love as the motivation for his ministry. He says he has a ministry of reconciliation. He would see men and God reconciled. He says the reason that suffering and ridicule cannot stop him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Are there any secret disciples here today? I know in some contexts the me measure of secrecy is necessary. Maybe you're a missionary in a dangerous place where you have to be clever with your words, wise when you speak. Even some secular contexts, you do have to be wise about how you speak about your faith. But the Christian life that is cross-shaped must be driven by this knowledge that wherever I go and whatever I do, I know and am convinced that I am completely His. 
I belong to him, body and soul, and he is mine, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We have got to find a way to live that out in courage. We've got to find a way. Some of you may be hiding out, even in this room. Maybe you, you've held yourself back and you're, you're guarded. Maybe you're scared if you open up and, and agree and say, He is Lord. He is King. Maybe you're scared today of what you'll lose in comfort or power or status or even control. The resurrection of Christ is an invitation. It's a call for you to finally step out in courage and in faith. Well, chapter 19 ends with silence. The silence of a, a grave and a body laid there. And that's where the world would have the story end. At the end of John chapter 19. But we know that that's not where the story ends. So number two, we see hope. We see hope. One of the dominant themes in the Gospel of John is the theme of darkness and light. So right in the prologue, in the beginning, it says that the light has come into the world and darkness has never been able to overcome it. And the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel is just that. It's the light shining into the darkness through the public ministry of Jesus Christ. It's summed up in his words in chapter 8, verse 12, where he cries out, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Well, in chapter 13, the scene begins to change a little bit as the public ministry comes to a close. And it seems as if the light is withdrawn. The betrayer steps out from the presence of the one who is light. John highlights the saying, literally, he walked out into the dark of night. And in chapters 18 and 19, there's another change, as it seems that the very light is extinguished through betrayal, arrest, torture, trial, crucifixion, and a, a burial. So that in the final verse of chapter 19, what we see is with the, the setting of the sun, Pass, I mean, Sabbath approaching. The body of Jesus is laid in the tomb and the day has slipped away along with the life of the world's light. Well, in, in chapter 20, it begins with a woman, woman walking to the tomb on the first day of the week. And there John highlights still that it is dark. It is dark. As dark as the feelings that Mary must be having on this morning. She goes to, to begin a painful task to finish the burial process with a heavy heart, broken dreams and a, a broken hope. She walks in the cool of the early morning as the darkness wraps itself around her and presses into her soul. The sun will rise, but surely without hope, without true light shining, or so she thinks. She gets to the tomb and she finds that the stone is rolled away. And she runs and finds Peter and John and says, they've moved him and we don't know where. Now the, the next time that we come to John's gospel, we're going to really dig into the story of, of how Jesus comforts Mary. And Mary actually becomes the first person to see the risen Christ. But for now, looking forward, we, we will learn 
the lesson that Mary ultimately learned, that darkness could not overcome the light. That's John's point. It couldn't master the light of the world. Mary's hopes, the disciples' hopes are dashed for a moment, but as the sun rises on this day to chase away the darkness, their sorrow will turn into something else, into joy and hope, a better hope than they knew possible. They'll all later understand how all of these things were in accordance with Scripture, that he had to die and rise again and fulfill Scripture. Psalm 16, verse 9 to 11 is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament that is a prophecy of, of what Jesus would do. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The empty tomb would spark an eternal hope because if he has died, if he has been buried, but if he has actually risen again, that means that Jesus has conquered for us death in the flesh and the kingdom he establishes is an eternal kingdom. You see, our, our hope today is not in something ethereal or nebulous, but in something concrete. I remember when I was studying in seminary, we were studying the resurrection and, and one of the theologians we studied had said, it doesn't actually matter whether or not Christ really rose or truly rose from the grave as long as when you're reading, he rises in your hearts. How wrong that is. The empty tomb is important. It establishes a continuity between Jesus' pre-death body and his body after the resurrection, though that body now is glorified, there's a continuity. He rose in the flesh. And so our hope is concrete. His resurrection is the first fruits of ours. His resurrection is the guarantee of ours. And the empty tomb is a promise to us, a promise that Jesus is the path to the presence of God, the fullness of joy, the pleasure forevermore that Psalm speaks of. It's an eternal kingdom where, as we sang, God intends to literally dwell again with us. Is Easter's comfort the hope that is established in your heart and in your mind today? Is that all your hope in life and death? It's meant to change everything. It must change the way that we live. Peter, who is at this point similarly Brokenhearted will go on to see Jesus Christ as well and then say in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So do you today have a hope that is alive and well, whose name is Jesus Christ? Easter means courage, it means hope, and finally it means faith. I read this week of a, a growing trend around the world. Uh, apparently this is happening in more and more countries. Have you ever heard of uh, a death cafe? Anyone ever heard of death cafe? 
So regular restaurants or, or uh, coffee shops sometimes participate in this event. They would decorate according to the theme of death and make cakes and cupcakes and, and that theme as well. And, and on their website, the point is um, good cake, good coffee, and discussion about death. People meeting just to discuss death. And the, the whole purpose, they say, is to deal with our fears around it by, by just openly speaking about it. Accept our impermanence. The fact that death will come and that will be the end. The problem with that is that the Bible teaches the permanence of our existence, doesn't it? One day, I mean, we will, we will live on. All of us, we are immortal. And that will either be a, an eternal life in the presence of God or it will be the life of eternal death out of His presence. And the way that we deal with fear is not through existential acceptance. There's a, a reason. <laughs> There's a reason the idea of it all just ending. There's a reason that sends us into crisis. And that's because we're created as immortal. Our answer and hope must be an unshakable confidence in what Jesus has done in his resurrection. And this is John's purpose. His purpose is that you would have faith in that. So let's look at, at this account. Verse 3, Peter and the other disciple, they're going towards the tomb. Both of them are running together. But the other disciple, that by the way is, is John. He never refers to himself by name. This other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Um, why does he share that detail? <laughs> There's a lot of fanciful interpretations. I think it's just because that's what happened. They had a, a foot race, and maybe for posterity's sake, John wants you to know if anybody ever tells you that Peter's faster than, than he is, that they're a liar. When John shares the details of his eyewitness account, sometimes there's just details that, that just happened. Verse 5, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, true to form, comes following, and he goes into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. <coughs> now again, the details of the linen cloths lying in one place and the face cloth folded up in another place, there's been a lot of speculation about what that means. I think we ought to just let John's intention guide us here. And we know that for John, this was a watershed moment. Unlike many, this moment was a watershed moment for him. In verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Isn't that amazing? For as yet, he says, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They hadn't yet connected all the dots. They hadn't yet gone on that, that journey through the help of the Holy Spirit to see how Jesus had fulfilled all the scriptures. But John peers into the tomb and goes into the tomb and sees the linen cloths and the face cloth folded up, and it means something for him. It convinces him Jesus is alive. Most people became convinced when they saw Jesus face to face. For, for John, faith is sparked in this moment, and so he wants us to see something here. He wants us to see something. So what do linen cloths lying in an empty tomb mean for John? I believe it should put to bed certain theories about 
um, or theories against the resurrection. There are many, aren't there? But it should put to bed some of those theories. For starters, the, the theory brought up that maybe Mary went to the wrong tomb. I mean, it, it's dark and Mary is a, a woman. And <laughs> men, you're not allowed to laugh at that. That's just a sexist theory, isn't it? If Mary got lost, she, unlike a man, would have asked for directions. <laughs> but there are linen cloths lying in the tomb. So his body had been there. The second theory is maybe it was just robbers. Robbers had stolen his body. But, but would robbers act in this way? Would they unwrap the body in the tomb and leave that, that costly cloth in there? Would they then have folded up the face cloth and, and put it in a separate place? I think John is convinced this is in the work of, of robbers. And what about the soldiers who had been told to guard the tomb? Matthew's account says that the Jews actually asked for Pilate to put a guard there, which he had done, and he had put a seal on that tomb. So this common objection to the resurrection, what if somebody stole the body? We have to ask who and why. What, was it the soldiers, perhaps? Just some elaborate scheme, a practical joke. We know that they risked their very lives then for a practical joke. It was dangerous for them that the body was not found. Maybe it was the Jews themselves. Some people say that the Jews possibly took the body in order to keep it from the disciples, get there before the disciples can, so that when later the disciples claim that he rose again, they can produce the body. But they never did. They never produced that body. The most common is that the disciples stole the body. And then what? And then lied about it. They, they stole the body and lied about the resurrection and they maintained, all of them maintained that lie that pursued them to prison, to death, to torture, gaining nothing of, of earthly value in it. The only, people that, the only reason that people lie and, and start cults is either because they're crazy or because they gain something out of it, money or, or power, but Christianity is built on the testimony of many who claim that they saw Jesus Christ and then they taught, we don't store up for ourselves treasures on earth, we don't amass earthly comforts, and then they went on to give their lives for that testimony, for what they said that they saw. Maybe you're thinking, maybe it's just all a myth. How do we know anything in the Bible is actually true to begin with? Well, Scholarship, New Testament scholarship, and I'm not, I don't just mean just Christian, I mean even atheists would agree that, for example, the, the book 1 Corinthians written by Paul, now Paul was Saul who had been comfortable and had had all of those things, popularity in the Jewish faith, he gave it all up because he himself said that he saw the risen Christ. Was he just being deceptive in this letter when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17? He's, talking, he's looked at the, the hardships that he's faced for his, his belief in Jesus. Was he just deceiving us when he says, If Christ was not raised and we have hope only for this life, then we of all people are to be pitied the most? All scholarship agrees as well that the, the creed that I quoted that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. Listen to this. This was an early creed. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul saying, go and ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the disciples. Almost all scholarship agrees, Christian and atheist, that this creed came from sometime within even the first decade after Jesus died and rose again. The point is this, the first Christians, it's indisputable truth, the first Christians who, who spoke about seeing Jesus, either they were lying about it or they truly believed that they had seen the risen Lord. That's not a myth, that's history. Another Common theory, therefore, says perhaps he just never died to begin with. It's called the, the swoon theory, that he passed out on the cross and was then revived later in the tomb by the coolness of the tomb. But think about that. The, after the beatings and the scourging that he received, he was crucified by Rome. They were the most efficient um, killing machine in the history of the world. Uh, the amount of ineptitude that would have had to go into that crucifixion is laughable. And then after massive blood loss, he, he's put into a tomb, a stone is rolled in the way, and without medical attention, then he, he gets up, he takes off his own linen cloth. Remember, Lazarus had to hop out of the tomb after Jesus raised him from the dead, but Jesus did it himself and then overpowers the guards, removes the stone, and then appears to the disciples in this beaten and bruised and and we can form and somehow convinces him that he is Lord of life. All this to say, I mean, we could, you could debate back and forward with somebody forever about the resurrection, but all this to say that John wants us just to be confronted with this question. And maybe you're here and you're not sure about Christianity. You're not sure about the the. the the Bible and everything that it teaches, John just wants to ask this question, did Jesus rise again? Did he rise again? Because that really ought to change everything. Wolfhard Pannenberg, the theologian, said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you would have to change the way that you live. You'd have to change the way that you live. And maybe that, if you're here and you don't believe, maybe that is your issue today. Maybe that's your concern and your worry. Really, you understand the gravity of it. If Jesus rose again, there's gravity to that, and that would be too disruptive to your life, too disruptive to come to him and say that you are Lord. I mean, heaven knows how disruptive it can be. Just ask those throughout the history of the, the church who have called him Lord and then died for it. But ask them as well if it was worth it. Speak to those here today who believe in him and we would invite you the same as John would, I believe, right now to taste and to see that the Lord is good. His lordship, his kingship, his reign is good. Maybe for you it's not the disruption or you believe it's not the disruption that Christianity would cause to your life. Maybe you just have questions. Maybe you have deep philosophical issues. Why is there so much suffering in the world? 
Why are there so many religions? Maybe you had a painful experience in the church. Or maybe there's something in the the teaching of the Bible that you don't really like. Could you be confronted today with, with the reality that not believing the evidence or not considering the evidence because you have a philosophical problem is that's pushing aside the evidence because you've already decided in your heart not to believe. John's saying, consider it. Did he rise again? That is the central question. If he rose, then it comes with the truth that he is who he says he is, that he is Lord over your life. And the truth is then that we don't actually get to come to him with, with demands. You must answer all my philosophical questions or I won't believe. The truth of the resurrection is that he doesn't owe us answers. He doesn't actually owe us anything. The only thing that we deserve is hell. And yet he gave up his life and he offers us grace. That's the truth of the resurrection. It invites you to share in undeserved grace. And so Romans 10 verse 9 says to you today, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Christian, you who who believe in the resurrection, let it be a, a cause for faith today. Let it be a cause for faith. Take to heart again the truth of the resurrection. The bedrock of your faith is not in something nebulous. It's not in your own intelligence. It's not in your own goodness and your own control. It's not in your own wisdom. The bedrock for your faith is in an, inve- in, in, in an event, in a person, in something that actually happened. It's in one who loves you, who died for you, who was raised, the Bible says, for your justification and who is coming back to take you to be with himself. What is our only hope in life and death? The Heidelberg Catechism says that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are comforted today by the truth of the resurrection. And I pray that you would make us bold because of it. Lord, as we we go out into the world, we are not wiser or smarter. We are not better than anyone else. But we know the simple truth that though we are sinners deserving of eternal separation from you. You have given us life through Jesus Christ, that he died on a day in our history and that he rose again on another day in our history. And because of that, we look forward with hope and faith to something that cannot be taken away from us. So make us brave as we live out our our Christian lives, we pray. We're desperate for your help. Amen.